Welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your spirit to be here, active, among us, that as your word is declared, that it would find fertile ground in our hearts, that we would not harden our hearts towards your truth, but that we would eagerly receive it, that we would be comforted, encouraged, and convicted as the need be, and that, Lord, we might leave today loving Jesus a little more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We live in a day that really is kind of obsessed with the question, who am I? And it really marks a confused day because we don't really know how to answer the question. When someone says that they're searching for themselves or searching for their own identity, what does that question even mean? I remember uh, that question uh, came up and my kids were watching a cartoon show and one of the cartoon characters just said, I don't know who I am anymore. And I just sat there going, why would my kids even need to ponder that question at this age. Now the most obvious answers for a Christian are really straightforward. You say, who am I? Well, I'm a human made in the image of God. I'm a human who is redeemed by the Son of God. I am the son of Bruce and Laura Secord, the grandson of Mervyn and Teresa Secord and Barney and Lucille Young. I'm the husband of Emily, the father of Gideon, Joshua, Daniel, and Tess. I am the pastor of Christ Bible Church. I'm an American citizen. And the list could go on and on and on and on. But what, what do we mean when we say, who am I? And how are we supposed to answer that question? Our search for our identity today is often meant in some weird idea of casting off everything I just mentioned. Those things are actually holding you back from your true self. And that what you replace that with is some weird definition that you make up that you can't really define that is often tied to some victim label and a muddled idea of modern psychobabble. I heard one person say that there is really only one story out there in the work of fiction, that all stories are some distillation of answering the question, who am I? Who am I? And that storytelling it really is a great way to learn about the human condition. It's a great way to learn and to teach about good and evil, but we tend to make everything about that question. Because we have become, and I say this not in the way that pop psychology means it, but more in the traditional sense, we have become a hopelessly narcissistic people. We are very, very enamored with ourselves and finding ourselves. And as I've said to you before, I suggest that if we spent less time trying to find ourselves, we would know ourselves a whole lot better. While we are obsessed with our identity and finding it, the Gospel of John is obsessed with the identity of Christ. It's obsessed with telling us who he is. 
and what his mission is. And those two ideas are really linked together. And the idea of who we are is also linked to that. If you understand rightly who Christ is, you will come to see yourself rightly. And as the identity of Christ is fleshed out throughout this book, it's he is the word, the eternal word who took on flesh. We then see also why he took on the flesh. The identity and mission always go together. If you step back for just, just a moment and think about our day, one of the reasons why we're having this identity crisis is it's intentionally infused even into our children's cartoons from, from a young age because they want to reorientate our mission and direction in life. Identity and mission are inseparable. And so today we're going to see the ministry and the testimony of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's ministry and testimony revolves around the identity and the mission of Christ. And then we will flesh that out a little bit and end by seeing how we should respond to who Jesus is and what his mission is. So John, the Apostle John, begins his discussion on John the Baptist by calling it the Baptist testimony. Like, this is the testimony of John. That is not an accidental word. Throughout this gospel, there's going to be questions about Jesus testifying about himself and the Jews coming to him and saying, that's not a valid testimony. You don't get to identify uh, yourself. We should take note of that. Because in the Bible, in order for something to be established, and in, in, in order for a truth claim to be examined, it required two to three witnesses. Before we would even give it serious consideration, God says you need two or three witnesses. You need corroborating evidence. And so John starts his discussion about John by introducing his testimony. Here is another witness about who Jesus is. And so John the Baptist issues a series of denials about his own identity. He says, I am not the Christ, I am not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet who is promised to come. Now, if you know your New Testament well, you know that Jesus actually says something opposite about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. Jesus says that if we're willing to hear it, John the Baptist is indeed Elijah who was prophesied to come. How are we to make sense of this? John says he's not. Jesus says he is. Well, generally trust Jesus over anybody else. <laughs> Moreover, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, where the angel announces the conception of John the Baptist, he says this, that this child will minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So why does John deny that he is Elijah? Well, if you remember your Old Testament well, you know that Elijah never died. He was carried off into heaven. And so when the prophecy in Malachi came about that John the Baptist was going to return, many of the Jews interpreted this as a physical, literal return of the exact same Elijah. And John looks out at the, at the people sent by the Pharisees to come and question him. He says, I'm not that. I am not a reincarnation or a resurrected or a returned Elijah to earth. But rather, if you're understanding your Bible well, the prophet Elijah represents the prophetic office in total. He is the prophet par excellence. He is the prototype of what a prophet is supposed to be. And in John, the Old Testament prophetic office has returned to the people. After 400 years of silence, of no prophet, a prophet has come. 
And he has come in the spirit and the power of Elisha, or of Elijah. And so, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist really is this Elijah who was to come. He says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus, in Matthew, not only says that John is Elijah, if you're willing to hear it, but he's also the greatest ever to be born of women up until that point. But he will be the least of anyone in the kingdom after that point. What does that even mean? How is John greater than all the heroes of the faith that have come up to that point? How is he greater than Moses? How is he greater than Abraham? How is he greater than Elijah? How is he greater than David? If you follow the ministry of John the Baptist, he, he shows up. As far as we can tell, there are no recorded miracles from John the Baptist. He doesn't heal anyone. He doesn't do any great work of his own power. And somehow, he's the greatest. Well, if we think about this clearly, I think it, it makes a lot of sense how John the Baptist is the greatest. The whole of the Old Testament prophets, the work of Abraham, the work of Moses, the Torah, the writings, but especially the prophets, their job was to do one thing primarily, to point to the Messiah. To say there is a Messiah coming, and this is what he will look like. This is what he will do. But all the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Moses, they all died before that Messiah came. They all looked forward in anticipation to it. John the Baptist is the greatest up to that point because he gets to fulfill that mission. He gets to be that final Old Testament prophet and say, that's the one. That's the one we've been talking about. That's the one we've been waiting for. No longer, he will be here someday. He's here. And in that way, John is the greatest up to that point, And he is a transition or a bridge from the Old Testament to the New. Now a new greater era has come, so he's the least because the era we are entering into is an era of fulfillment in the, in the Messiah's coming. The kingdom is now in the midst of the people. And so John the Baptist is the greatest in the fulfillment of the Old Testament office of prophet. But he is not even worthy to untie the shoe of the Messiah. This is John's testimony. The Messiah has finally come, therefore repent. And the ba John the Baptist helps us to understand then who is this Messiah and what is his mission. He announces at the very beginning here as Christ shows up, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, I, I, said, to the, I said this to you guys earlier. I'm going to say it to you again. If you want to understand the Gospel of John even a little bit, you have to know your Old Testament really, really well. When he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, that's just dripping with Old Testament references and meaning. If you don't understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, the history of Israel, then you won't understand what John is talking about. Why is Jesus identified as a lamb? Why is he here not identified as a lion or a tiger or a bear or anything else? The immediate image that should come to your mind is that of the Passover lamb. When God sought to free his people from Egypt, he sent a final plague. And in that final plague, the angel of death would visit 
the enemies of God's people and exact his judgment upon them. And the people were instructed to kill a lamb, to put the blood over the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over that house. To put it plainly, the lamb died in the place of the people. And though the Old Testament sacrificial system had many different types of sacrifices for different sins, different occasions, everything from bulls and goats and lambs and birds and even grain sometimes, the lamb stands in as a symbol for the whole thing. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that system, the pinnacle comes at the Day of Atonement. The people would bring forward two lambs or two goats upon which all of the sins of the nation would be pronounced on these. One of those would be killed. He would be slaughtered for their sin. The other would be chased out of the camp, symbolizing that the sin of the people has been removed from them. It's been moved out of the camp. The lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. Literally, that is where we get the term scapegoat from. You put the, the sins on the goat and you chase them out of the camp. You scapegoat people. Jesus is that lamb upon whom the sins of the people are placed. And he dies in their place for their sin and he removes their sin from them. This is his mission. This is why he has come. So John, in his prophetic mission, identifies who the Messiah is, and what his mission is. His mission is to be a sacrifice. It is to die. The enemy being dealt with here is not Egypt, it's not Babylon, it's not Rome, it's sin. It's not Caesar who will be crushed, but it is Satan's head who will be crushed. And this is at the heart of Christ's first coming. That doesn't mean sin doesn't impact the political, but it tells us that our main problem today, as it has been since the fall, is moral. Our main problem is moral. We do wrong things. We like doing wrong things. And then we excuse doing wrong things. The problem at the heart of everything is between right and wrong, good and evil, light and darkness. And we as sinners, therefore, need our debt paid. We need a sacrifice. I really need you to hear this today because in a million different ways, you and I, we are tempted to always view ourselves as the righteous victim. This is the, the victimhood mentality of our day. You are always wronged and never wrong. Even if you're the most righteous person in this room, I want to say this to you very clearly. I don't know which one of you is the most righteous person in the room. <laughs> But even if that's you, you're still, the or you're still the villain, not the victim. You're still the sinner in need of salvation, not primarily the victim. There are at least two primary different gospels at war in our world today. There's the gospel of Jesus Christ and there's the victimhood one, which wants you to be viewed as the one who's judging everyone else instead of the one who is under God's judgment. The two don't go together. But Christ's mission includes more, though not less, than coming as a sacrifice. Consider verses 32 and 33. John says this about Christ. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Spirit comes and rests upon Christ in the form of a dove, and it remains on him. This was a sign to John that Jesus is indeed the one, and that Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and not with water. You have to remember, and all throughout chapter 1, and really going into chapter 2, there are these themes about pointing back to Genesis 1, pointing back to creation, to tell you that there's a new creative act going on here. And when we first encounter the Spirit of God at creation, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters before there is any form brought to creation. And here, above the baptismal waters of Christ, the Spirit descends and remains upon him. John's telling you something. And this same person will baptize the whole world with that same Spirit that hovered over the waters that were covering the world. This is a new creative work. And so Jesus goes around, and throughout his ministry, Jesus performs miracles. And what he's doing in these miracles is not saying, hey, look, I can do really cool stuff. Oh, look, I can return sight. Oh, look, I can bring people back to life. What he's doing is showing you fundamentally what his kingdom is like. What he's doing is showing you what the new creation will be like. No death, no blindness, no sin. Christ's miracles are a glimpse into this new creation, this new act. That as familiar as we are with sin and its impact, sin and evil are abnormal in creation. God created the world. He declared it very good. Sin entered the world. It's weird. It's abnormal. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so Christ is setting things back by healing the sick, restoring sight, and overcoming death. But this theme of the Spirit is, runs throughout the Gospel of John. In John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he says that if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to be born again. And he goes, how am I born again? Do I go back into my mother's womb? Jesus says, no, that comes by the Spirit. You need new life. You need to be created again. And so Jesus, the resurrected one, in John chapter 20, he appears to his disciples, and what does he do? He breathes the Spirit upon them. This is a foreshadowing of the day of Pentecost, but Jesus is literally baptizing his people in the Spirit. So the mission of Christ is not just to remove the sins of man as the Lamb of God, though it is never less than that, but the mission of Christ includes renewing and remaking the world by his power through the Spirit. It's about redemption and transformation. Redemption and renewal. And just as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters at creation, the Spirit of God settled on Christ at the waters of his baptism. The mission has been announced. Redemption and renewal. This is why Jesus came. And now we turn back to his identity. John has a few things to say to us about who Jesus is as well. The identity of Christ is the main theme of this book. And again, I remind you that there needs to be two or three witnesses, according to God's standards, two or three witnesses before we even consider something. 
That doesn't mean two or three witnesses means it's right, but we need at least two or three before we even give it serious consideration. And so John gives two titles uh, applied to Jesus here. Or there are two titles applied to Jesus here in this passage. Son of God in verse 34 and Son of Man in verse 51. And you all know those titles. They're familiar. You probably think that Son of God affirms Christ's divinity and Son of Man only affirms Christ's humanity. But the answer is actually far more complicated than that. Throughout the Gospel, um, Jesus will refer to God the Father as his Father. Again and again. He will say, I am the Father in one. I am the Son. He is my Father. And in doing so, Jesus claims equality with God, that he is one. He's the one and only Son of God. And because he says these things, the Jews seek to kill him. They recognize what he's saying. And so why does Jesus say these things? Well, the old saying is true. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If my family weren't sick today, I would have a little mini-me running around. Looks just like his father. He's got the same strengths and weaknesses as his father. The apple doesn't far, far, fall far from the tree. There's a family resemblance. They look the same. This is what we're getting at here with the title, Jesus is God the Son or the Son of God. He is equal to his father, one with him. You see, in the other gospel accounts of Christ's baptism, the Father speaks this identity upon Christ. Not just John the Baptist, but the Father speaks from the clouds and says, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. And John the Baptist affirms that he is the Son of God. The second title, Son of Man, is the most often used title of Jesus in the four gospel accounts. Over 80 times in the gospels, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. It is the title he gives for himself. And in Old Testament terms, Son of Man is used in two different ways. First, to label humans. To be a Son of Man is to be a human. But here we should also note that Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, refers to Adam as the Son of God when he's doing his genealogy. But second, and this is what Jesus means by the title here, Son of Man is used to refer to the messianic figure found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Why do we know that this is what Jesus means and the gospel authors mean by that title? Because why would they use it 80 times if they're just saying he's a man? It's not saying anything special. There's nothing important really there. But in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, we're introduced to the Son of Man, who is spoken of in divine terms. So if you flip to Daniel 7 and you read about the Son of Man, the Son of Man sounds a lot like God. So the Son of Man title is also a claim to divinity. This prophecy comes in the context of the four beasts that represent four world empires who will be crushed. But into this, the Ancient of Days rules over everything and sits upon his throne. The Ancient of Days, of course, is God. And then we read that one like a son of man comes on the clouds to the throne of God and he is given eternal and universal rule over all the nations, over all the world, forever and ever. This son of man is described in both divine and human terms. 
one like a son of man. And so when Christ applies that title to himself, he is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming divinity. Thus, Jesus Christ, identity, son of God, son of man. Fully God, fully human. And both of those titles point to his divinity. And that leads us then to our our last point for today. So what? What does that mean for you and me? Verses 35 through 51, we get a series of Jesus' first calling of disciples. John the Baptist says, this is who Jesus is. Son of God, Son of Man. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. He comes to baptize us in the new spirit, which brings new life and new creation. And now we get the so what. John the Baptist is ministering, we should note, not in Jerusalem, but he's ministering in the wilderness. And not just anywhere in the wilderness, he's ministering at the Jordan River. This location is dripping with meaning. It would be like me going and giving a political speech at Gettysburg or Lexington in Concord. There's weight to this. The Jordan River is the river Israel had to cross to end their desert wanderings in the wilderness and to enter into the promised land. And if you remember, God parted that river so they could walk across into the promises of God. And so the water of baptism in that very same river of John's ministry are something that Christ goes through to bring the promises of God. But there's even more to it than that. John is ministering in the wilderness because even though Israel had come back from exile, even though they had set up a temple in Jerusalem, they are still spiritually dead. They are just like the generation in the wilderness, wandering around with no hope, no direction. They're spiritually bankrupt and prisoners in their own land. In short, this was a time of spiritual and cultural decay for the nation of Israel. Into that, Christ came. And that should ring some bells for you and me. God is not afraid about difficult or uncertain times. In fact, these are the times when we see often God doing something great. A sudden shift. Working in new ways or a revival breaks out. This is when God moves. So how then should we respond How do the disciples respond? I got four things for you from these first callings of disciples. First, we are called to come and see. We are called to come and see who Jesus really is. Consider verses 37 through 39. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and they said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, come, and you will see. Right before this, John the Baptist tells those two disciples who were his disciples, it's not really about me anymore. It's about him. Go be with him. And they approach Jesus, and they say, hey, hey, can we come with you? And Jesus says, oh, yeah, come and see. It's not primarily about seeing where he's staying. It's about seeing who he is, that he is the eternal word who took on flesh. And so we can say this very, very clearly. All true faith and all true discipleship starts with this, coming to Jesus and seeing who he is. 
you don't rightly see Jesus, you're not following him. It starts with beholding the Lamb of God, seeing him in his glory, seeing him as the one who baptizes us in the Spirit. The truth of the matter is, the American church for far too long has sought to domesticate and neuter the Jesus of the Bible. We have these pictures of Jesus in our Sunday school rooms and we train our kids up on it forever that he's the soft, only affirming man who just wants you to have a good self-image. You'll find no such Jesus in the Bible. You will especially not find that in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the infinite one. He's the light of the world. He's the life of the world. He's the son of man who rules over every nation and king. He's the one who crushes tyrants. He's the one who's setting up his everlasting rule and dominion over everything. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father surrounded by glory. He is the one who everyone on the last day will be forced to bend their knee and say, yep, it's him. So put away your neutered view of Jesus and come and see him as he really is. God in the flesh. Second, to be a disciple of Jesus is to go and to tell others about who this Jesus is. Listen to the call of Philip. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. No sooner does Jesus call Philip than in this story he goes and he finds someone else to tell him about Jesus. He says, we found him. This is the one we've been waiting for. And he's like, are you sure? I mean, that's a terrible town. But it, it demonstrates something very, very clear to us. Every one of us who claims to follow Jesus is instructed to tell others. Whether that's your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, whether it's supporting churches that do the work or missionaries who do the work around the world, this is a part of what it means to be a disciple. We want others to know this Jesus. Third, to be a disciple of Christ is to have your whole life turned upside down and changed. Andrew and Simon, that is Peter, were following John one day, and by the end of the day, they were following someone else. There was an abrupt change in their life. Philip was just walking around Galilee. I'm sure he had plans for his day and his week. And Jesus showed up, and he followed him. Nathaniel at first mocks the idea of Christ coming from Nazareth. And then he sees him, tells him a little thing about sitting under a fig tree. And everything changes. And he calls him the Son of God. What is the most basic element of this change we see in all of these disciples is Jesus says, follow me, and they do it. So let me rephrase it. What's the most basic change that happens in a believer? It is this, faith-filled obedience. Faith-filled obedience. It really is a shame that the idea of obedience has become a dirty word in evangelicalism. But you can't read your Gospels or your New Testament or your Old Testament without getting hit over the head with this again and again. Obedience does not save you, but a faith without obedience also doesn't save you. A living faith leads to 
obedience. And let me put it to you this way as well. This obedience is very inconvenient sometimes. It's hard. It's meant to be hard. But it is something that we do trusting God with the results. God says, go and confess your sins to one another. That's not easy. But we do it in faith-filled obedience. When God says, forgive someone who's wronged you deeply, that's not easy. But we do it in faith-filled obedience because we trust God. To be a disciple is to be a student of Christ and to follow him, to have a new direction in your life, to believe on him and to obey him. Fourth and finally, to be a disciple of Christ is to expect to see more and greater things from Christ in the future. Listen to this exchange Jesus has with Nathanael. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathanael's doubts of Christ are overcome simply by that little prophecy. And then Jesus says, You're amazed by that, but just wait. This is a reoccurring theme throughout the New Testament. God has greater things still to do. Greater things for you. And in this part of the gospel, it culminates with the opening of heaven and the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, who is Christ. So to be a disciple is to have experienced a real life change in Christ and to realize that's not it. There's more to come. To be a disciple is to have a hope for today and for tomorrow. Therefore, we are called to live with confidence and no matter your eschatology, you are called to live with an optimism and a hope for the future. For you will see greater things in Christ. In this way, we are called to give our entire lives over to Jesus. Not halfway, but to give everything to Christ, follow him, and then trust him. Emily and I were talking about this last night, that I read something a fellow minister wrote. He said, the longer I've been a Christian, I think the number one thing that fellow Christians need in life is encouragement. I don't think he's wrong. He's 100% right. And we were talking about that. And I said, the problem is, is that much of the encouragement that goes out today is little better than pop psychology self-help. Here's your encouragement. Feel great about yourself. Here's your encouragement. Feel great about Christ. Trust him. He will do greater things than you can imagine. And there's living proof of that in this room. Trust him for the future. Leave your old life behind. Run to Christ. Do as he says and watch him work. Trust God with the results. He is worthy of that trust and he is stronger than you are. Let's pray.